Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This is a podcast from Minute Media. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, January the 9th, 2022. Happy New Year. Of course, you can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can just show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. And of course, I want to thank our good friends, over at the fan-sided podcasting network and check out the good folks over at risingapple.com. And I guess, you know, some say if you're a Curb Your Enthusiasm fan past January 7th, Larry David says no Happy New Year, but I'm going to wish our co-host a Happy New Year. Long time we've been trying to get connected here. John Struble, you guys know him, uh, MetsRewind.com, at MetsRewind on Twitter. A lot of fun stuff going on at that account, one of my favorite accounts, and he's going to be joining me over the next hour as we're about day 37 into the lockout. So 
I'm a little tired speculating about player transactions and waiting for some activity. So we're going to do a little history uh, show here. And who better than the best history Twitter account out there than Mets Rewind and John Struble. John, welcome to the program. How are you, my friend? Thanks so much, Mike. I've missed you. Uh, we haven't talked in a while, so I'm glad we're I know. finally able to catch up here in the new year. I know. Awesome. And, you know, for some that don't remember, I had you on my old NYBD podcast mm-hmm. probably. Wow, I'm going back 12, 13 years ago when you were <laughs> in the first iteration of Mets Rewind trying to do a little history perspective on the July 4th, 1985 game. I remember yeah. you thought at one point maybe writing a book about it, but what has mm-hmm. morphed into a book and an idea uh, basically, um, you know, now is a, uh, you know, a Twitter account and a website and a podcast and you got a lot going on. So why don't you let, before we get to Twitter what we doing really, here, which is, you know, listen to, let us know what you got going on. Yeah. Twitter is really the, and, uh, once Twitter became very active, I was able to, uh, gather an audience fairly quickly. And I am always take a moment to really recognize how he rose for that. I was doing okay and had a few thousand followers and uh, we were building an audience slowly, but surely. But one night I was watching a Mets Marlins game and, and someone had tweeted to me and said, are you listening to the Mets radio broadcast? And I said, no. And he said, Howie Rose just mentioned Mets rewind on the broadcast. And all of a sudden, boom, couple thousand followers this is before how he was actually on twitter but he i think he had access to it but maybe wasn't really posting like he does now and how he really uh he he was really nice and really kind i i had never talked to him before so i reached out to him after that and said thank you you really kind of jump started and uh grew my audience pretty quickly just by mentioning the account so how he has been um an advocate and a, uh, and a fan of the Mets Rewind account. And that's really where it started to take off, I think, at that point, Mike. So it started with Twitter, and then I, I just did the social media platforms, and people started asking for a little more depth in the content. So I uh, hadn't, hadn't thought about a website, but then when I, when I did, it was um, made perfect sense because there's so much content that you can really expand on from a historical perspective. And John has had a knack of finding obscure Mets that are not easy to get. Look, I've been doing this since 2007 and I've had the Mackie Sassers and I got to sit down with Buddy Harrelson many years ago. Mm. uh, His guest he's got coming up tonight, Kevin Mitchell. I actually met at Strawberry's Old Restaurant in uh, Whitestone, I think it was. I can't remember where it was. And uh, Kevin Mitchell at that point, did the interview, but I have a picture of the body language. He wasn't exactly feeling me that whole time. So Kevin could be, uh, listen, he has had a lot. He's had rough things go on in his life. I'm not criticizing, but uh, he's had the ability to get, and I'm talking about obscure Mets. Like when I heard he had Sid Fernandez, I'm like, Sid doesn't do any interviews. He's a hard guy to get. <laughs> and to give John credit, Sid is uh, a quiet guy. Anybody who's yeah. been around him. And I think you had to pull a little out of him, but you got Kevin Mitchell. You just got Bobby Valentine on the program. Um, you know, it's not easy to get these guys. It's, it's sometimes it's, it takes weeks and sometimes months, but, uh, it can be very rewarding. And I think the service that you do, uh, especially because you're not affiliated with the team and that's not a knock at Jay and what he does with the alumni group. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the fact that you're not affiliated with the team, uh, gives you a chance to maybe delve a little bit into some things that not saying controversial, but topics that typically are not 
you know, black and white or vanilla. And, and I think you've been able to do that with what you've been, uh, uh, have had so far. Yeah, it's, you know, there's a public relations side to the historical perspective, which the Mets do really well. And then there's the patch, the the quilt, I would say, of the fabric of the Mets and who they were, good and bad, because some of those scars that they had, you know, trading Seaver and the bad trades and the stuff that people say, please don't remind me of that. Well, it's part of Mets history and it's part of who they are. I don't love, I'd rather be talking about World Series championships all the time, but those things did lead to other decisions and in Mets history as a holistic thing. So when you look at something that was a negative perspective, you could use something even like, um, uh, who was it? Uh, not Juan Samuel, um, uh, Vince Coleman, when he lit off the firecracker in Los Angeles. Well, you know, those led to other decisions with players and in different uh, avenues the Mets took. And it really, you, you have to, I think the most important thing when you're looking at Context. It's so important to storytelling of historical events. You can't look at a trade line and then just go, yeah, that was an awful trade. Jim Fergosi was terrible. Well, how did you know that at the time? And what were the circumstances around uh, Ryan's trade in 1971 that led the Mets to trade him? And how did it affect the team moving forward at that time? Sure, the trade was bad, but if you look at it holistically, but more importantly, in context, if you really want to understand Mets history, that's the way to do it. Absolutely. And that's part of what we're doing here. We're kind of playing a little Mets what if. Uh, what I thought about is here's John, who's, you know, from a standpoint of independent media, he, he's the top at when it comes to Mets history. I mean, he's established this account, as you said, Howie Rose, you know, when you get Mets royalty and, and why I'm doing what I do here, you know, I grew up. Uh, without cable television until the early 90s because I wasn't wired in New York City where I lived and Howie Rose and Bob Murphy and Gary Cohen uh, Mike and the Mad Dog when they came around you know Steve Summers you know that initial WFAN crew was who I learned sports from I would listen to it you know under the covers not to use that old uh, you know summer schmoozing sports under the covers but that's what I did and then you know when I was 16 we finally got cable and then the world changed from a a media standpoint. So bringing those two together, fun debate and discussion uh, as to some of those what ifs you just brought out, what, how, how things could be different is what we're going to do here. But before we get to that, you do have something fun coming up. Uh, if you want to go on uh, at Mets Rewind on Twitter or MetsRewind.com, you're doing, you do your own Mets Hall of Fame. Now, some of the guys that are up for election are already in the Mets Hall of Fame, right? <laughs> so, but you're doing your own maybe more fan centric and you could vote up for three. I did my three. I won't reveal yeah. those to the end. I did my three this morning. Okay. Um, so talk a little bit about that for those who are listening who may not have voted yet. You got almost 500 votes already and it just started. So you're going to get a nice participation here. Talk about your Mets rewind hall of fame. Cause that's a pretty cool uh, idea too. Yeah. That just started out of the idea that fans talk a lot about the Mets hall of fame and the hall of fame in general. And I thought this was an opportunity to really zero in, on Mets players and uh, those who were important to the organization and honor them in where they stand in Mets history, because I don't think anyone tells the the Mets history better than their own fans. And those who look at it from that are still around. I mean, that's one of the joys that we have. There are fans who are around from the first day 
the first pitch of Mets baseball. And to me, that it, there's very, very few franchises left in baseball where those that fan base from the origins are still alive. I mean, you got the Marlins and you've got a couple teams that are a little more uh, Blue Jays, I think. But, uh, you know, for the most part, the Mets rich history, there are fans that are still alive. That was at the first game in 1962 at the Polo Grounds and so on and so forth. So, uh, yeah, going back to the um, the uh, Mets Hall of Fame, I just wanted to honor those players and, and give fans a voice and an opportunity to vote and, uh, and leave their mark on Mets history. And uh, it's, it's just really taken off. This is actually the fifth class we'll elect. We have 13... Six, twelve. I think there's 15 in all 13 players and two two broadcasters. Right. So you got a chance here to potentially uh, select up to three. I'll give mine when it's all said and done. John, do you want to okay. reveal who you voted for? Or you want to you want to stay neutral because uh, you don't want any influence there. I, I place the very last vote. Um, ah. And that's that's how I do it. So uh, I will oh. place my vote on the last day. And I don't think it's going to come down to one vote, but uh, that top five that are in there right now, Joan Payson is morning. Um, number two is Cleon Jones. Number three was Lindsey Nelson. Four was Mookie Wilson. And five was Tommy Agee. So there's 16 on the ballot. Those are your top five right now. And uh, I will I will make my determination on um, July 3rd before 11.59 p.m. Wow. So you got seven months. You got a lot of time there. And yeah. if, if somebody wins by one, you guys know who to blame over there. So. <laughs> but first, the Players' Tribune has launched its first ever mental health podcast, Blindsided. Plan your work and work your plan. For many athletes, saying such as this could be considered scripture. Permanent signposts lining the long road to success in sports. For some... The very act of pursuing a career in sports can give a sense of control, a sense of safety, so long as you stick to the plan. That is, until life happens. The kind of life that happens while you're making other plans. Breakdowns, insecurity, panic attacks, PTSD, addiction, sudden life changes. Ones that require an athlete to toss aside their well-laid plans and answer the question, what's your next play? Blindsided is a podcast about sports, mental health, and life. Hosted by former NHL goalie Corey Hirsch and psychiatrist Dr. Diane McIntosh, the podcast will share and analyze the moments for a variety of athletes when everything changed for them and what happened when it did. The podcast lets listeners hear these athletes describe moments when mental health became the most important focus on their lives. Blindsided then dives in deeper. It gets clinical, and it allows listeners to leave with an understanding of the different varieties of mental health challenges people face, why they appear, and how athletes in particular face them down. Blindsided is a sports podcast not only for the people who follow sports, but for also those who don't. Guests this season include Kevin Love, Paul Bissonette, and Kurt Warner. Check out the Players' Tribune and its first-ever mental health podcast, Blindsided, and let them know that Mike Silver from the Talking Mets podcast sent you. So, um, yeah. you know, there's so many what ifs and we're at an interesting time in Mets history and I've talked about it. You know, we're almost at that 2000 Red Sox time in Mets history, the yoke mm-hmm. around the neck, you know, the failure, you know, the, the passion of the fan base, I believe, is higher than it's ever been. The anticipation and and now there's all these resources and we're certainly in a new era of Mets history. And I think my biggest fear with money now 
and corporatism that could come from the Steve Cohen era, all the good that comes out of it with the resources and, and the fun that comes from baseball and winning, you don't want to lose what I think you just talked about, which is the charm and the history of the Mets. You know, maybe they don't have Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle and Monument Park and 27 World Series or even the uh, nostalgia of the Cubs or the Cardinals in the National League. But the fact that Mets Rewind can get the kind of support that it gets and play and a guy like Mookie Wilson, who was a very good player, but on most sort franchises would be just a run of the mill type of guy. Mm-hmm. could be in consideration for the Mets Hall of Fame tells you how special and how in tune the fans are with history. And I think part of history for the Mets is understanding where we've come from and the mistakes that have happened and how things could be so much different. I mean, the Mets almost have been this close to greatness, starting mm-hmm. with not drafting Reggie Jackson. I mean, you could go even back to that. And yes. Steve Chilcott and Reggie blames Casey Stengel and whoever it may be. And so on and so forth. So I think why I came up with this is that thinking about your account, thinking about how we're celebrating all these players in Mets history, how close you and I could be sitting here with that little butterfly effect. Anybody who's watched that movie with Ashton Kutcher, the butterfly effect, the one little thing, drafting Reggie Jackson, not trading Seaver, not trading Ryan. You know, we could go on and we will. How it could be different. We could be talking about the St. Louis Cardinals Mets with 11 (laughs) titles, maybe. And I wonder, as you go through history and you talk to these figures in Mets history, does it ever come and hit you in that way as well? It does. And I think there are a couple examples of that. Uh, We were close to that um, on a couple of different occasions. Think back of it. When the Mets were on the cusp of being great, and one of the teams that I think that was right there in more recent history is the 2006 team. And I think we'll discuss a little bit later about the 06 team, but that team, Mike, was so talented, so well represented as far as a balance of veterans and young players, and just so um, well put together that they were set up for a few years to win championships and didn't do it. Now, some of those guys were bought and brought in that that collection of players started with Pedro Martinez. You get Pedro Martinez that led to Carlos Beltran that led to Carlos Delgado, Paul LaDuca. Those guys come together. Then you add Reyes and Wright in that combination of players. They had some injuries right at the end of that 06 season that cost them a little bit too. um, That really impacted their inability to really run the table but it all what it also did was i was looking back at Mets history and you look at how they took their eye off the the farm system in the organizational overall during that period you look at the mets drafts from 2005 to 2008 and those guys that they picked and what was available in the market were not the best selections there could be. Hindsight's twenty twenty. That's a cliche. We know that. It, 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 we can make it a perfect draft if we look back now and, and cherry pick the players. But the fact of the matter is the Mets uh, were on the cusp of greatness right there in 2006. And with a couple adjustments, could have been in 2007, 2008, and so on and so forth. So, you know, uh, that that inch, that one decision – it, it can change the whole trajectory of the franchise for years to come. Yeah, absolutely. So. And uh, joining me 
co-hosting today, John Struble, Mets Rewind at Mets Rewind on Twitter, MetsRewind.com. As we look back at Mets history and take a little bit of a, a break from lockout talk and speculation about who the Mets are going to put in the bullpen and, and look at Mets history, uh, great cold post-New Year's winter day. Uh, Mets have been known, and we'll start with the farm system, and I mentioned it before, you know, they're, you know, of course you could go and say they should have drafted Reggie Jackson, but you can mm-hmm. do that with any draft. I mean, right. so I didn't want to start there. And if anybody, you know, forgets, you know, Whitey Herzog was instrumental in the Mets having a strong farm system back mm-hmm. in the late 60s, early 70s. And I'll, and I and I'm not sure if you've spoken to anybody uh, on your show, but I know that one of the turning points, and ironically, I just did a show about him uh, in t- franchise history where things started to get. Uh, wonky in the 70s and led to what really was the probably the worst period in franchise history, which was 1977 to basically Will Pond double day ownership in 1980 was the death of Gil Hodges in spring training, 1972, I believe, 1972. Mm-hmm. And why that's the case is, yeah, the Mets were a flawed team. And then they went to the World Series a year later. But one of the things I think that many thought was that trading of Nolan Ryan was part of that decision that maybe Gill would have had some influence on. And not only that, with those Mets teams, and if you look at those Mets teams from 72, 73, 74, even up to 76, right before they collapsed, they were mid-80s teams. Maybe they were missing a little bit. Um, yeah, you had the Phillies, you had the Pirates, you had some really good NLEs teams. But the Mets had, and if you go to baseball reference and look at their uh, wins above replacement, if you want to just use a metric at that point, Mets had three of the top 20 pitchers in all of baseball, Kuzman, Seaver, Matlock. And you had Ryan at number four. Um, you know, part of me wonders, could the 70s have been reimagined? And then does that lead to a different Seaver outcome? Now, Seaver and Ryan had, at that point, some of that uh, over the, the salary, some of that, uh, you know, competition. Mm-hmm. But I wonder, have you thought, what does a Mets rotation look like? They certainly, you got to think, when the 73 world series. And what could that be as Ryan came into his own? Uh, what can that be over that period? That's one of the first, what ifs I think starts with Gill passing, which is a bigger all encompassing conversation. And I think it ties very much into Nolan Ryan as well. I think it does. But again, I go back to that point that context is so important to storytelling here and understanding why Nolan Ryan was not with the Mets after that 1971 season. Number one, he wanted out of there. Um, And there was, that was not hidden. Uh, His success really began Mike with a change of scenery because Nolan Ryan could throw the heck out of a baseball, but he didn't always know where it was going. And he didn't have a secondary pitch at the time. He had a fastball, And he might have had some type of curveball, but he didn't have command of those pitches and keep hitters off balance as he did later when you saw him with the Angels and he became very successful. And then with the Astros and the Rangers, a couple things to consider at the time, 1971 comes to an end. The Mets have Kuzman. They have Seaver. They have Matlock or Matlack on the way coming up who would come in in 1972, and they had Gentry, who was still a formidable force at the time. So pitching coach Rube Walker says, this is his quote, we tell him to throw as hard as he can for as long as he can. 
That was his instruction to Nolan Ryan. Ryan really didn't get a whole lot of meaningful instruction there. Do you, are you familiar with um, a guy named, um, oh, what's his name? Tom Morgan. He was the pitching coach of the Angels in 1972. And he overhauled Nolan Ryan's mechanics and taught him that biting curveball that he had. He was a dead end in New York. That was it for him. The Mets just weren't going to spend any more time coaching him. So the only way Nolan Ryan could have become the pitcher he became was to get out of New York, in my opinion. Um, You know, like I said, he confessed that if the Mets didn't trade him after 71, he was probably going to quit the game, which I thought was a very compelling statement. He had had about enough of baseball. And he thought, okay, I've hit a dead end. I've hit a ceiling. I'm done. So he goes to California and Tom Morgan reinvents him to some degree. And he starts to flourish like nobody else. And and you got to consider, he goes to the Angels. He was the focal point there. They didn't have a Tom Seaver and a Jerry Kuzman ahead of Nolan Ryan. So I think some of those things, when you keep that in context, to understand Ryan's situation in New York and then what he had handed to him in California really set him up for years to come of success. And command took him till his mid thirties. I mean, if you look at the numbers, mm-hmm. here's a guy that walked five, six batters per nine. You yeah. got to strike out 14 or 15 per nine <laughs> these days to really justify that. But you know, obviously there's soft contact. We don't have the metrics that we have now. Yeah. What's what's funny about that deal. And it really ties into the, the the issue with the era is that the Mets never could get their offense going. They were a bad offensive team Mm -hmm. and they tried getting for but this actually goes back further than Ryan trading Amos Otis Mm -hmm. for Joe Foy trading, you know, and I, and I know people love Rusty Staub, but that deal giving up Ken Singleton, Ken Singleton was a better offensive player, a money ball player, a guy that would walk a hundred plus times out there. And when you look at guys like Amos Otis and Ken Singleton, Again, go back to uh, advanced statistics that can still measure basic counting stats from the era. Those are top 15, top 20 offensive players in all of baseball. Maybe things are different. So the Mets' failure to develop on the offensive side led to them trading some key components, trading Ryan, trading Amos Otis, trading Ken Singleton. Now, you got Rusty Staub, and Rusty was huge in 1973, and a beloved Met, no doubt about it. Solid mm-hmm. offensive player for a veteran. But would you rather have Amos Otis and Ken Singleton? And I think you might see a different offensive Mets team that even with the loss of Ryan, you know, 83, 84, 85 wins could become 90, 91, 92 at that point. Mm. And who knows? I think it's really interesting how they could never get that. And they took basically the 69 World Series and never were able to leverage it into any kind of meaningful run. And they truly, you you can look this up, the attendance. Mets were the toast of the town, similar to the 80s in the early 70s before the Yankees had the Steinbrenner comeback. Uh, the Mets were known as the, you know, they weren't your father's baseball team, so to right. speak. Yeah. You know? yeah. they, were, they were hip. They were young. You know, I don't want to say they were hippies because Tom Seaver was far <laughs> from a hippie, right? But, you know, they were more disco than they were, you know, Elvis rock and roll, let's say, right? Yeah. So, um Really interesting, all those things that go into play. Can't get offense going. Bad trades to bring in Joe Foy, who was a nice offensive player, but he and Fergosi just were total overpays. 
Yeah. And, and that leads to the whole demise. And, and again, Gil is in this because even with all that, do you think for who you talk to, would Gil have been able to be meaningful enough where he had that Walter Alston effect in the Mets uniform where could he have been all the way up into the 80s? Could he have been? He was a young man when he passed. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's interesting. And all that, could he have overcome some of that as a manager if he had been, had he been around? I know this comment is going to sound so counter, but I need to preface it by saying, in no way am I suggesting that Gil Hodges is not a Hall of Famer, that he didn't have an excellent career, that he wasn't a good manager. But let me point this out. Gil Hodges managed the Mets for four seasons. If you extract 1969, which is hard to do because it was such a miraculous season. His career managerial record in New York was under 500. He was 239 and 247. He was at 492 winning percentage. I invite Mets fans, Mike, and baseball fans alike to consider the totality of his managerial career without bias and emotion and think about Was he really that good of a manager or did all things fall into place in 1969? Because if you step back even a couple years earlier, when he was managing the Washington Senators, who weren't a great team, he improved them. But I don't think they ever got over 500 under Gil Hodges. I think they were all they were they were building and growing. I think they got to about 75 wins. I could be wrong on that, but I don't think they got over 500. So he improved the team, but they weren't a championship caliber team. So don't misunderstand and think that I think Gil Hodges is, shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. I just want to point that out, that Gil was good, but three of his four years, they were mediocre. 68 was a building year, 69 the championship year. 70 and 71 didn't happen. Yep. 83 wins a year. Yep. And and that was the thing. I think the Mets, uh, that run they went on, you know, we talk about the Terry Collins Mets. And if you really think about the Terry Collins Mets, you're looking at two second halves from August 1st on that made the legacy. You know, we're talking about 16 to 18 good weeks. And when I say that, people get crazy because they're going to remember those years much more fondly. And look, 2015 is a very special uh, season in Mets history. Um, not sure it's my favorite, but it's up there. Uh, yeah. How unlikely it was and how the season changed after August 1st. So you're really what you're doing. And I'm going to do this as well. And maybe what you say is controversial. What I'm about to say may drive everybody nuts. Mm-hmm. But here's what I will say. As you move into 1977 and the Seaver trade, by today's standards, and I've said this before and people get angry at me, by today's standards, how the media and modern fans and analytically driven fans look at deals. The Seaver trade wasn't a bad trade because you were getting back uh, a rookie of the year pitch who pitched the world series. You were getting Steve Henderson, who was not a slouch old prospect, by the way, power and speed, Dan Norman, power and speed. And yeah, Doug Flynn was a throw in, but he was a glove. And back then middle infielders who had gold glove caliber potential were huge they were looked at differently you didn't expect to mark belanger never had to hit he was a hall of famer in the eyes of orioles fans because of his glove now there was rumors that they could have traded him for don sutton and that probably would have been uh siever light And, and and but when you think about how where that team was in a rebuild uh not as bad as everybody thinks by today's measurement and i've said that and i don't think people realize uh because it's so controversial and so tear the heart out the emotion gets in the way similar to what you said about Gil 
What are your thoughts on that as I break it down from a modern way of looking at the Seaver trade? Well, it's a good point. And I think if you look at the Mets holistically from that time, if you if you look at the Mets after the 73 World Series team, which, by the way, they got to the 73 World Series winning 82 games during the regular season. Were they a World Series caliber team? Mm, that was not a great team. That no, was not a great team. That no. things fell into the right place and, and things happened. I mean, the fact that they beat the Reds in the NLCS alone was a miracle for me. I, I just thought that was stunning because the Reds were so on paper were so much of a better team. And, and they showed the following years, they became the big red machine and won championships. The Mets fell off from 74 to 83. The Mets winning percentage was 431. I mean, For a whole decade, they were a disaster, Mike. And I think that goes without saying, if you add Ryan into that mix, going back to that conversation, and they secure Seaver, could it have redefined their success on the field? But it gave them good good quality pitching up front. You wouldn't have had Craig Swan and and Pat Zachary leading the way, but you would have had... uh, Two really good pitchers probably pitching their hearts out, giving up one or two runs a game. But would they have won games? They didn't have the offense there to really be a good caliber team. They had a a championship caliber team. So, you know, I don't know. I I don't know. History um, is what it is. And I, I don't know what the other answer is. But the Mets were just after that 73 season all the way from the front office to the manager on the field to the players on the field, they were just a very poor put together organization. And Seaver has so many what ifs in his career. So he comes back, the Mets lose him. If they keep him, maybe doc doesn't come out of spring training in the 84 season. And I was reading an old, and I tweeted it out an old uh, Bill Simmons article from 2004. Think about this. What if, uh, Seaver has his comeback in 87. Um, but the prior year he got hurt and couldn't pitch in the postseason. And, right. and Simmons as a Red Sox fan points out, what if it's Seaver pitching game four at Fenway in 86, instead of Al Nipper who got tattooed. I think that's mm-hmm. the Gary Carter two home run game. If I'm not mistaken, I mean, yes. Nipper was just tattooed. Um, think about Mets down two one in a series Seaver against his former club. Give him six innings. I mean, he probably is not going to come out at six innings, but in Boston, having a chance to say, you know what? I remember you guys letting me go. A prideful guy, one last chance, like the old Vin Scully uh, statement. And for the love of the game, the Kevin Costner movie, one of my favorite baseball movies, one last chance at a sunrise or a sunset, whatever. I can't remember the actual quote from Scully in that. One last chance at baseball before the sun sets. Uh, Think about that. That would have been an interesting dynamic to the 86 world series we never got to see it thankfully for Mets fans I think they can handle that (laughs) never had got to see that think about the what-ifs from 77 to 87 and could he have made a great comeback in 87 if he didn't get tattooed by Barry Lyons in a minor league simulation game so many different things Seaver is like a 10-year what-if in Mets history despite that he's going to have his statue this year unveiled at City Field uh wish he was around for that but think about all the what if Seaver brings to the table post that 1977 trade. Yeah, if you go to com and look up, um, if you keyword in Tom Seaver, there's a story I wrote, and it was a few years ago, about the crooked 
the crookedness of his success. And despite having won 311 games and 198 as a Met, um, his line wasn't a straight line to success and all the stuff that he had to go through to be as successful as he was, was um, inspiring to me. He was amazing regardless of what was going on around him. He just was so consistent and so good as a pitcher. That story kind of tells his, you know, everything he went through with the Mets, taking them out of not accepting losing when he came to the team in 67, bringing them to the World Series in 69, um, bringing them to the brink in 73 and pitching his heart out through those mid-70s years. Then they trade him. Then they bring him back. And then they let him go. And he wins number 300 with the White Sox at Yankee Stadium with Lindsey Nelson calling the game. Right. I mean, right. all the stuff that kind of like falls into that. It's like storybook. And it's just such a crooked way to get there. And it, it wasn't easy. It wasn't um, wasn't anything you'd look at and go, wow, 311 wins. On the surface, up front, you know, it's got a nice bow on it. But uh, underneath, everything he had to go through was just amazing. He is um, he is the franchise. And they almost, if you believe it, and again, I think it was Davey didn't want him. Mm. They tried to get him again in 85. I think it was Terry Blocker's name came up. And uh, it turns out I think everything went wrong in the Seaver Mets reunion. And yeah. certainly, if you look at that 85 staff, they could have used him. Mm. Uh, absolutely. Cause Sid Fernandez was a young pitcher, not quite there yet. Regagulera, they had guys who were not quite there yet. I get Davies, uh, reticence, you know, maybe at this point, doc and darling, why do you want Seaver on the staff? You know, Seaver was uh, an opinionated guy. Mm. And I think Davy was also, uh, an alpha. Maybe that mm-hmm. was too much alpha in the room, but very interesting uh, on that, how close Seaver was to being part of that 86 greatness, uh, either on, their team or potentially stopping the, I mean, the, the connection is unbelievable and how close he was to being a Yankee during that time. And yeah. that would have been the beginning of George Steinbrenner who started collecting X Mets with strawberry and cone and Gooden and so on for years, how close, you know, that would have been George's first trophy Mets trophy who he yeah. so, so badly wanted to grab at that point. So you start pulling that thread and you start to look at other potential impacts. You talk about Seaver being an alpha. It's like, even if he didn't pitch a lot for 85 or 86, or even if he stayed on the roster in 87, what impact could he have had on a Dwight Gooden and what he was going through off the field to be some type of impact that would peel some of that back and make him um, the pitcher he was expected to be? I mean, you can take different segments and really start to peel them out and make up hypotheticals, but he could have been a major influence during that time. Absolutely. You never know. Absolutely. The one of the ultimate what ifs in Mets history as we transition is the late eighties Mets. And you could go to so many different directions here. You can, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody talks about the Mike Sosha home run uh, gut punch first as a baseball fan, a young baseball fan, old truth be told first gut punch of my young baseball fan life. It was Mm -hmm. a charm life, you know, starting a roof of the Mets in 85, 86, you know, you don't have any really, I mean, yeah, the Terry Pendleton home run killer, but you got over that real quick when 88 came around and they would dominate mm-hmm. at least. Uh, but even before that social home run and subsequently some of the big, uh, you know, losses, you know, 89, there was a loss uh, with a Willie Randolph home run, ironically, in 89. Many Mets fans remember that started a tailspin. 1990, they just didn't have enough to beat the Pirates 
bullpen implosions. John Franco had a rough first year down the stretch in New York. But one of the biggest what ifs, and it's the guy that you're interviewing later today, uh, Kevin Mitchell comes up because there were two moves they made post 86. They didn't stand pat. Um, they went out, they traded Kevin Mitchell uh, for Kevin McReynolds. And if you remember, and you've had Joe McElveen on the program, your program, mm-hmm. McElveen loved Kevin McReynolds. Mets loved Kevin McReynolds for years. And he was a top college prospect, uh, had some knee issues that prevented them from going after him. I'm not surprised because it sounds like that was the apple of their eye for a long time. When they had the chance to get him, obviously they gave up some prospect capital in Sean Abner and Stanley Jefferson and, 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 and maybe that, you know, at the time those were big prospects, but Kevin right. Mitchell was the big leaguer that maybe that was the excess on a good offensive team. And then they didn't re-sign Ray Knight, who didn't really play well his entire two-year deal. He really fell off uh, with the, the Tigers, but he had some good moments in Baltimore and he would have been a useful veteran. Knowing those two guys, the impact they have, Think about all the twists and turns. You know, it impacts Howard Johnson, potentially. Uh, it impacts Kevin Elster's career, potentially. Maybe they move Mitchell to shortstop for a little bit. Uh, McReynolds never comes here. You know, Mitchell had issues off the field and imploded in his own career physically and off the field, the, the, you know, playing for Davey until 1990 and whatnot. Does that change? And I think a big part, and you mentioned this about Nolan Ryan. If you listen to Kevin Mitchell, and I don't know if he talked to you about this, but I heard him on the Brett, uh, the Brett Boom podcast. Dusty Baker had a huge impact on him in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And to this day, Dusty calls him and checks in on him. Mm-hmm. And that would not be the case if he stayed with the Mets. You know, he would not have, maybe Bill Robinson was that guy. Who knows? You know, right. so it's very interesting. And you've interviewed a number of these 80s guys. They talk about Mitchell being the guy and Knight being the guy that where it ended. And that's how the, King of, uh, the Kings of Queens goes in that uh, direction with the documentary. But, you know, the Mets were still very good. And Howard Johnson was an excellent third baseman offensively mm-hmm. uh, and a versatile guy who could play short. So it wasn't like they got rid of those guys and they didn't have anybody on the flip side. And McReynolds was a MVP candidate in 88. Hmm. He, uh, in hindsight, you know, I look at this and again, I say hindsight's twenty twenty. And it's cliche, but the phrase is true with Kevin Mitchell. He added depth to that 86 team, but we didn't know how he would perform if he were playing all the time. He was given opportunities and he did well when he did. He peaked after leaving New York. And a lot of that, I think, has to do and go back to the influence that Dusty Baker had on his career. So that's speaking to Mitchell. Howard Johnson, who you bring up, I think, Mike, that is one of the greatest trades in Mets history. The risk reward was debated at the time of the trade, but Johnson went on to lead that team in so many offensive categories year after year for nearly a decade. It's one of the most underrated players in trades in Mets franchise history. They won that deal in so many different ways over so many different years. Howard Johnson is one of those guys that I think just flies under the radar and does what he does. But if you go back to that 88 game, I love this. I read this just the other night. Len Dykstra was talking about that, that home run that uh, Mike Socia hit. And he pointed the finger directly at Davey Johnson for losing that game, that series, and potentially a second World Series appearance. Myers um, was ready in the bullpen, if you remember. Um, but Johnson didn't make the change. So almost 
Two decades later, we saw a very similar scenario take place in game five of that 2015 World Series when Terry Collins doesn't make the change with Matt Harvey in the ninth inning. But this is baseball. These are the decisions that lead to great debates for years by you and I. But both managers made their decisions based on that information that was available, and they both failed. So, you know, if you look at that late 80s team, they had they had parts and pieces. I think after the 86 team, some things were going to happen. Ray Knight was one of those guys that I think kind of was a glue to that team. Was he a great performer on the field? Maybe not. Maybe he was average, but he certainly didn't accept failure. So after 86, I think he would have been one of those guys that really kind of, you know, pricked the, the Mets a little bit and said, you know, let's get it together and get playing better. So he was an important part of the Mets. Was he worth a couple of years in Baltimore after that for the money? I don't know. It's hard to tell. No, That's but a, he probably that, he probably would have been OK with some kind of diminished role at right. that point. And if, you know, if Mets fans want to look, look at Kevin Mitchell beginning at 87 in San Diego. And look at him after the trade deadline mm. in San Francisco. Totally mm. different player. I Absolutely. Mean, not, I mean, you, I mean, and, and I'm sure John will get into this on his podcast and, and whatnot, but the influence of Dusty Baker, and I've been a critic of Dusty Baker, you know, mainly because of the way he's handled bullpens in the past and whatnot. And as a competitor, you know, the toothpick and his, his demonstrativeness, always as a Mets fan, you can think back to 2000 and it annoyed you. But you got to respect the hell out of what he's done as a manager, especially in his 70s now, doing it in this modern game. It is amazing. Um, you know, it is absolutely hard to, to speculate. And I know the late Gary Carter and I had a conversation when he was manager of the Ducks. And I asked him, I said, to this day, do you think Myers should have came in? And he smiled at me. He goes, was it my decision? Um, <laughs> was it my decision? Now, look, you walk John Shelby. Shame on you, Doc. Don't walk John Shelby. Uh, not the guy to walk, uh, you know, the, the light hitting and, and who would have thought that social would have, uh, you know, gotten to a fastball. Sometimes other teams have their magic too. I mean, think about baseball history at that point, we are denied the Kirk Gibson moment in baseball history. If the Mets win now, Mets fans don't care because they want another title and we right. assume they would have beaten Oakland, but look, Oakland was not a slouchho team. I mean, no. uh, maybe the later iterations of Oakland in 89 and 90 were a little bit better, but they had this dominant closer uh that's you know to this day you know uh you know one of the best seasons all time is a Dennis Eccles closing season I think in 91 or 92 at a 0.63 ERA this is before the dominance of you know 100 mile an hour relievers and everything like that but uh how you know it's amazing how close and if you look at the 87 team and Keith Hernandez has talked about it you know no Mitchell or with Mitchell that's the opportunity they feel they lost. They had a great offensive team, one of the better offensive teams in Mets history. Uh, I don't think the Cardinals were particularly good. Uh, they just happened to do enough and had that last run as a group where, uh, you know, the Mets were about 10 or 11 games back at the All-Star break, and they just ran out of gas. And the penalty, I mean, again, Terry Pendleton, who wound up having power later in his career, but in 1987 was not a power hitter. No. You know, other than Jack Clark, they had no, no power in that lineup. They were a pesky team, good defense, a lot of speed, a bullpen by committee, which is something that, you know, uh, you know, was basically you had to have a, a G, you know, I think it was, uh, I'm trying to remember, uh, Keith Hernandez said, Whitey Harris and Bobby Valentine, the two, I think you put the quote up there on your Mets Rewind uh, mm. account, said those are the two best managers he's seen all the time. And why yes. very, you know, you could go back to a what if, Whitey, you know, did not get the Mets job after Gil died. They gave it to Yogi Berra. 
Correct. There's another turning point. You know, we didn't, we're going backwards a little bit here, but it ties into the 80s Cardinals. It's again that whole, what if Whitey takes over? Does Whitey have a different take on things? Do they make some different moves? Does he have influence on the front office? Uh, Whitey is a Hall of Fame manager. And uh, we talk about Buck Showalter, you know, short of a couple of, uh, uh, you know, championships, you know, Buck is very similar to Whitey Herzog in terms of uh, type of manager he is over there. Very much he- a. A change, a change agent, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. He sets the stage and really sets the. I, I use this word loosely, but he sets the culture and the expectation in the clubhouse of how how players are going to prepare and what they're going to do. And I think that that'll make a huge difference uh, in how the Mets respond on the field after losses in the regular season during a, over the course of the season. And it could change the trajectory of the team and how they perform if they get to the postseason because he will have established this is how we respond to losing. This is how we correct it. And by the end of the season, the Mets are operating in a different way. They're responding in different ways. Yep. And think about it. A guy who is known for the Yankees as a minor leaguer Hmm. and his career helping the Mets get to the next level, similar to how the Yankees <laughs> brought in Cone and Strawberry and Gooden and, and in yeah. their 96 quest uh, needed some 86 Mets help and what have you. You know, as we move along, you know, the Mets went through this period where there was almost like inertia between mm-hmm. 1991 and 96. Like, you know, a lot of fans kind of stepped away. Worst team money can buy. You know, the NBA became very popular. The Knicks and, you know, you had the, you know, the ascension of the NFL and, you know, the Rangers win a Stanley Cup. And I think baseball, mainly because of the strike and a lot of fell beneath, I think, a lot of the other teams in this town. I can tell you baseball has always been my first love. The Mets always been my first love, but they were a distant second, the Mets to the 90s Knicks, especially those early 90s versions with Pat Riley at the helm. And then this group of young pitchers starts to emerge. And, you know, it's hard to speculate about Generation K because Paul Wilson was supposed to be Roger Clemens. And Jason Isrias turned out to be a pretty good closer. And Bill Pulsifer, who, you know, was the most bombastic of the three, the most uh, uh, confident, although he had tons of later in uh, his life, talk about tons of confidence issues and, and mental health issues that he's spoken about. I had a chance to sit with him at a Long Island Ducks game many, many years ago, and he was pretty honest about his challenges. You know, these guys come on board in 96. And the question there is, is interesting. Did they have the right manager? Probably Dallas Green was a better manager post Davy Johnson for a veteran team than a young team. I don't know if he had the makeup and the patience for those young players. Right. And was the town at the time when you're hyped to be the next Glavin, Smoltz, and Avery back then, or Maddox, you know, Maddox had just come to the Braves. Um, was the town ready for the speed bumps of young pitchers, which – Anybody who knew recent history saw how Smoltz and Glavin weren't Smoltz and Glavin their first few years. I mean, Glavin got tattooed early in his career. Sure and did. here Paul Wilson gets hit hard. Isringhausen, after a great rookie campaign, can't get anybody out and is a wild child. Pulsifer never really got hurt right away. You know, if you look at the innings they pitched in the minor leagues, you know, I've talked to Jim Duquette about this. They definitely didn't follow any of the principles, the modern day innings limits principles. These guys pitched serious innings when they were brought up. Now, that could be the organization, that could be Dallas, but think about was the right manager, was the right market for these kids. Think about how different things are. You may never have the Piazza Mets or the 9-11 home run if those three guys 
come to fruition. It's a totally different Mets team and maybe a different type of uh, late 90s turn of the century Mets team. I think one of the things to be very careful about, and you'll see this if you reflect on history or if you look at the way um, players are promoted moving forward, the idea that three pitchers, three players that are expected to perform every fifth day in this generation K could be expected to change the fortune of an entire generation, not just a season, an entire generation of a baseball franchise is simply illogical and just flawed thinking. So when they hit the cover of Sports Illustrated, that was the first thing that made me shudder a little bit. I may not have recognized it 30 years ago when I was looking at it, but I do now. The idea that three pitchers would arrive in New York, dominate in New York, never have injuries, is just wishful thinking, but it's unrealistic, Mike. One of the one of the greater, I think, subject matters around history, if you look at it, is expectation. I wish someone would write a book on this about those players, not just how they failed, but those young guys who come up. Um, let me give you an example. Imagine being Bobby Mercer. Sure. You replace Mickey Mantle. You're a rookie. Now you have to fit. You can't be a veteran player coming in to fill Mickey Mantle's role. He was a rookie young player coming up in New York, in the Bronx, expectations high as ever. You're expected to be the next Mickey Mantle. I mean, I don't know if you've read, there's a story called Damn Yankee. It's written by Gary Smith of Sports Illustrated. It was written 25 years ago. I think it was written in 97, 98 time. Uh, but ha- have you read that story? Not yet. No, it's, okay. but I will now that you bring it up. It's probably interesting. It's a story of John Malingon, I think is the way you pronounce his name. He was the player who was expected to put, replace Yogi Berra. And if you want to get a sense of the pressure and the expectations that is put on a player to really pick up where someone who is a Hall of Fame type player and has that type of character that Yogi Berra had um, and how it really impacts a person, you need to read this story by Gary Smith. If you search the Sports Illustrated archives, it's in there. It's called Damned Yankee. It's also in his book called um, um, Going Deep with Gary Smith. It's one of those stories. He has a collection of his essays written in there. But it's the most compelling, influential stories that I have ever taken away on that conversation around expectation. And you look at young guys like that. Now, I wouldn't put the same, um, I wouldn't put that in the same category as Didi Gregorius replacing Derek Jeter because Gregorius came in with a bunch of experience. Mercer came in with no experience and had to replace Mantle. Same thing with Malagno. He had to come in and replace Yogi Berra as a rookie. And it was like, he just couldn't handle mentally. He was not prepared for that. So I think the expectation put on generation K 
was way, way blown out of proportion. And I think it had a huge impact in the way those guys performed. Absolutely. And if you look at so many things that happened after that, you know, Hunley getting hurt, leading Mm. to Piazza, you know, I've spoken to Mike about this and, you know, basically, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing how career could change if Hunley doesn't get hurt and he doesn't get traded to New York. And, you know, here he is now running Mets alumni, uh, basically, you know, who would have thunk when he got traded over here, but nobody thought he would stay that Mike would be the, uh, you know, for the Mets, the, the former, you know, hall of fame alumni now that Seaver has passed that's, yes. that's stumping for the organization. But if right. you look at that late nineties team post generation K, uh, that was almost like the re falling in love for, for me of me with the Mets and with baseball, you know, uh-huh. as much as the media has villainized the 98 home run chase, I didn't root for Sosa or McGuire. I wanted the Mets to win a wild card. I didn't want Sosa <laughs> to hit any home runs, right? Yeah. I, yeah. You know, if McGuire hit a home run, it was to help yeah. the Mets win, uh, you know, and get in the playoffs. But that really, to me from 97 to 2001 was almost the golden age of the subway series, the interleague play, mm-hmm the re uh, falling in love with this team, you know, a good team, a veteran team, a team that was, uh, you know, probably guys that, that knew how to play uh, maybe not the best at every position, but, but really knew how to do the tight rope act as well. And unfortunately, you know, one thing that um, I think that the Mets have um, didn't do is they didn't really um, leverage that. And they had a chance after the 2000 World Series, which we could debate Timo runs, Timo doesn't run, to sign A-Rod. And I know there's debate about that. But what if signing A-Rod have taken that good golden era and extended it and added that second superstar? Because Piazza never really – he didn't get Griffey. They tried to get Griffey. He didn't get Griffey. Uh, Yeah, you had Alfonso and Ventura. Uh, you know, Olerud, I thought that was, a, you know, there's so many what ifs on that team, you know, saving Olerud, Olerud on the 2000 team. But think about all the what ifs there, almost the same as the 70s where a move here or there. And, and, you know, maybe the Mets get, you know, the 2000 World Series. Maybe they they're better in 01 and 02 and they don't have to go out and get Mo Vaughn and all these other guys. So, uh, you know, A-Rod kind of is that poster child for the what if because he wanted to be with the Mets. Right. He wanted to be their shortstop, and everybody was ready. As much as Ordonez was this great and maybe the best defensive shortstop in Mets history, everybody was ready to move on. And who knows what you could have gotten for him in a trade if you, you know if you sign A Rod. So yeah, very I, interesting I think, how that goes there. I think if you think about A Rod at that time in 2000, he wanted to be with the Mets. He was a Mets fan growing up. He fit into the personality, the endearing type um, athlete that uh, the Mets would love to have for a long term uh, and build around. And he, it was a different A-Rod we were looking at then. It's, you don't have all this other history that happened after 2000 with him to reflect on. Those, those things all happened after he went to Texas and then to the Yankees, mostly with the Yankees and all that stuff that comes with it. So we didn't, you you have to look at A-Rod in context of at 2000, him coming away from the Mariners, he was just a young dynamic in that Griffey mold of type of player that everybody would love to have him on the team. But as you say, Mike, something changed. I think it was prior to the 2000 season and the effects were really, um, cumulative um 
instead of signing A-Rod, or even Juan Gonzalez was another guy they were talking about at the time. Sure. And Ken, sure. Ken Griffey came into that conversation. I, I think even a trade for Barry Larkin was up there at one yep. point. And, and that was completed at yep. the deadline. And Barry said, no, I don't want to go to New no, York. Then. He didn't want to go to New York. The Mets take a step back there. And I don't know if it was financial or what else was going on, but there was a lack of aggressiveness in not only the free agent market, but the ability to assess and make trades that were really good. And, you know, they acquired parts and pieces that were good, but the team lost like key contributors too. So they lost uh, John Olerud. They lost Robin Ventura after I think 2001. They lost Mike Hampton after the 2000 season. Dennis Cook, Turk Wendell get traded off in the 2001 season, or yep. it might have been two, yep. 2001. Two. Yep. And then yep. they bring in these guys like Jeremy Burnett, and they resign Roger Cedeno and bring in Shinjo and uh, Mo Vaughn and Roberto Alomar, who at the time looked like, okay, this could be a real good thing. But it turned out really bad. And, um, you know, if you look at A-Rod in context, he could have changed a lot of things. But I don't know over time whether or not, because you, if you look at A-Rod's track record, after the Yankees get him in 2004, how many World Series did they win? One. One. Yeah, yeah. one. You, $300 yeah. million dollar investment, an enormous investment for one title. So I don't know how fans quantify or qualify his value as a business investment, but $300 million over a eight, 10 year period to win one world series title. I don't know if the Mets, that would have been acceptable for the Mets. As we wrap up with our, what if scenario, you know, and you bring us to what John had brought up uh, earlier, the era of what if, and I really think where we are now with this yoke around the, the fans neck and the negativity and the paranoia and the incessant uh, cynicism that sometimes is, is, overwhelmingly tough to take as a mm. Mets fan and yeah. the media plays into it. Look, it's clickbait and the Knicks fans know about this. And in this day and age of clickbait media, unfortunately it's easy to clickbait the Met fan. Although I think what they've been doing off the field with the coaching staff and some of the credibility they're building up is going to help quite a bit with a professional like Buck Showalter. But um, you had mentioned winning in 06, and I think that, because that was the 20 years from 86, they had the celebration, everything. That was the season of love. There was I have never lived through a Mets season, even 99. Even 99, which was a great season, one of my favorite Mets teams that didn't win. Everything went well. There was really, even there was when Glavin had a little bit of an issue with his fingers, and then Pedro went down, and El Duque, you never felt, it's weird how to say, I never felt like they wouldn't win. You believe they would make, it would, it would find a way to, to work itself out. All the way to game seven, they fall down. And yeah, you're nervous, but you, you say to yourself, it, it will not end. It will not mm. end because every time they were down, this team came back. And, um, you know, sure enough, there's so many what ifs against that Adam Ray- Wainwright in game seven. There's a line drive that Reyes hits that, had a, that hangs up for Eric, uh, Jim Edmonds. You know, the whole Cliff Floyd swinging for the fences versus bunting and all this other stuff. And obviously Carlos Beltran, which to this day, the fact that he's one of your guys and and I'll just reveal one of my votes. I voted for him for your Mets Hall of Fame because he is a Mets Hall of Famer, and he may be the best free agent signing in Mets history. I think that's hard to argue. Mm. Uh, that was a Hall of Fame curveball from a Hall of Famer guy in <laughs> Wainwright who's still pitching 
at the age of 40, still dealing. And, you know, that at bat was, you know, if there's one thing that Beltron did wrong in that at bat is not swinging at that first fastball being aggressive. Cause I think uh-huh. a scared pitcher bases loaded, you go after that first fastball. And that's yeah. the pitch that, you know, I think if you had a truth serum, if you could get Carlos Beltron in a room, that's the one he would have went after. Once he took that pitch, very difficult at bat, very yeah. difficult at bat. And that was a nasty curveball. And to hate Beltron over that wrong guy to hate so many what ifs in that game, one of the toughest loss in Mets history, maybe my personal as a fan, toughest loss out there. Um, and I think that started the negative spiral that they just couldn't get out of an 07 and 08. It changed the trajectory of Willie Randolph's managerial career, Omar mm-hmm. Manaya's GM uh, legacy. Mm-hmm. And even with getting Santana and some of the near misses of 07 and 08, they never really, it was almost like there was this love affair and the fans felt cheated and they never mm-hmm. forgave them for it. Until 2015, where I think it washed it away a little bit, but now there's a different yolk around their neck for a different reason, more ownership-based. The ownership wasn't the issue back then. It was more, you know, and then you had all the issues, you know, of the kind of players they have on the roster and the mix of Latino versus white, all this negative stuff, Latino players, Los Mets, all the garbage and nonsense that didn't matter. Um, So it's really interesting how I think that's where this yoke really became a thing was after 06, because the Mets failed their fan base. The fan base gave them unconditional love and they let them down. I was at a Myrtle Beach Pelicans game um, in the early, I think it was 2000 because um, it might've been 2001. Adam Wainwright was an 18 year old rookie and I was sitting in the second row right behind home plate. And I didn't know him from anybody else on the roster. And he came in and pitched late in the game. And um, he threw a curveball, Mike, that to this day, I've never seen anything like it from that angle. And when you're behind home plate, there's the catcher and then there's the umpire. So you can lose sight of the ball at some point. Well, I saw the ball come out of his hand and it was like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. It just disappeared. And when he did it in 2006, I said, that was the guy I saw on the Myrtle Beach Pelicans. Now, of course, he developed it over another four or five years. And he was a rookie in 2006. But I cannot, I I don't know how anybody hit it in the minor leagues. And I certainly don't know how Carlos Beltran would have hit it. Um, but he didn't even swing. So, but to point out, you know, people blame Beltron for not swinging. It, it, it just locks you up until right. you see it and actually experience it yourself. And that's as close as I, I would ever come to experiencing a pitch like that. It, sure. it was stunning to me. It really was breathtaking to watch. And I'm like, I don't know if that guy's going to pitch in the majors, but he's got a heck of a curveball. And uh, he was he was interesting to watch. But talking about that 2016, again, that was an exceptional roster. That great mix of talent, youth, veterans, starters, depth. They had it all. If they win that 2006 World Series, would they be better in 07, 08? Would they have had a mini run where they could have won a few World Series? Or would they have lost the urgency and desire? Because once you win a championship, 
it's different. You know, sure. the attitude of the players, character and leadership will really define that. But, you know, guys like Wally Backman and Ray Knight are those type of players who challenged teammates, even made them feel a little bit uncomfortable at times. And that's a good thing. And whether or not the Mets would have had someone like that to do that, I don't know. But I think 2006 deflated them so much that it was hard to rebound. And I don't think overall, if you look at that 06 team and you look at that period of time, I don't think Omar Manaya's style was sustainable. I think he started fast, built the roster around, we talked about getting Pedro, which led to Beltron. They don't get Beltron unless they get Pedro first. And it opened the door, Delgado, LaDuca, Wright, Reyes come in there. You get that good mix. With all that energy and excitement surrounding the major league roster, the Mets system was getting weaker. And go back and look at those drafts from 2005 to 2008. In the end, Manaya just ran out of money and luck. And that's where the Mets started to slide. And I think that's what cost Willie Randolph his job. I think he was a fall guy. Absolutely. Probably shouldn't have been fired. And, and you know, obviously the Madoff situation started to come to front. So they didn't have as much money as they thought. And then right. that led to over a decade and whatnot. But what you're seeing now is really the same thing, trying to build at the free agent level, the big league roster, but with a focus on development. You're already seeing them. There. Mm. There's, there's some big international free agent signees that are going to be announced and the Mets investing in, you know, understanding that it can't just be like what they're doing now every winter, you know, and I think mm. that's, you're a hundred percent right. The one last, what if, as we wrap up, and then I'm going to give you my hall of fame is that game. And I'll give you the game four of 2015, Two managers, and I, and I get torched for this because everybody loves Terry Collins, and I was not a huge ter- – the bullpen management is awful. He cost them World Series. Here's why. Look at game four. Yes, Murphy made the error, but they brought Tyler Clippert in right before that, and then Familia had to come out runners on base. One manager used their closer for multiple innings. One manager didn't, and the manager that didn't was Terry Collins. Mets lost game four. Then, of course, we know what happened in game five. But I felt the series was lost in game four. And this yoke that could have been erased over there, that other opportunity to move away from 06, it doubled down on 06 disappointment. And now here we are. Here we are in 2022, hoping that Max Scherzer brings this, you know, certain uh, panache to get the Mets out of this, uh, you know, Charlie Brown cloud over their head and whatnot. So that would be the last what if I'd give you, because to this day that haunts me maybe more, definitely more than the Beltron Miss Curveball, because that that's just execution. Like that happens mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when you have a pitching decision, that's in your hands. You can make that. Mm-hmm. And I even I'm OK with the Harvey one. I'm 100 percent OK with the Harvey. I'll blame Harvey for using his not going after Lorenzo Kane in the ninth inning. That's on the pitcher for executing. Making yeah. a bullpen decision, that's in your control as a manager. That's my last what if I'll give you. And uh, then I'll give you my Hall of Fame as we uh, as we bid adieu here. Uh, I certainly agree with you. I think that, you know, and you can look back on seasons and moments during a season or even a postseason. You can look at a moment. we You talked about game four really um, changed the tone and the momentum of that series. But if you go back to 2000, you could also look at that Timo Perez, Todd Zeal hits the double, hits the top of the wall. If he scores, Bobby Valentine says, if he scores, it's a different series. You look back at that series, the final score of that series in five games was the Yankees 19, the Mets 16. They lost two one-run games, and the other two they lost were by two runs. 
it was just one. I think the Mets winning with so much momentum into that series that if they won game one and, and got out of there and split in Yankee Stadium, I think it could have been a completely different World Series. I just you and I, you so. and I could have rewrite Mets history. We'd be sitting on another four <laughs> or five titles. Uh, that'd be great, uh, Thomas Boswell writing. But you know, I'm not good <laughs> enough, and I don't have that butterfly flight. Then here we go. I go back and I try to change history, and I screw it all up, and then it's all. <laughs> so, John, here's my Hall of Fame. Uh, all right, I'm gonna. Vo- I voted for Carlos Beltran. I voted for Bobby Valentine and Edgardo Alfonso. And I'll be straight. There's so many good choices here, guys. Uh-huh. Go to MetsRewind.com. You can't go wrong. I did that because Bobby was tr- a tr- uh, transitional figure, a tran- uh, transformative figure in Mets history. Alfonso was basically Piazza's Robin. And before he hurt his back was a real complete player, mm-hmm. uh, you know, did everything defensively, offensively. And Beltran, I said before, best free agent signing Mets history. Without Beltran, there's no 06. There's no collapses because they're not even in the conversation. And nobody realizes signing Beltran was a big deal. They beat out. The Astros, they beat out uh, the Yankees. The Mets were not a team that was supposed to win those kind of free agent auctions, and they did. They chose yeah. the Mets. Now, does he regret it? Uh, you know, no one knows what's in Beltran's mind, but I think it was good for both sides. Uh, it certainly put him on the map playing in New York, and he had some fun moments. So that's my three Hall of Fame, the Mets Rewind Hall of Famers. You can't go wrong, guys. There's tons of them there. So, John, before I let you go, uh, what do you got coming up? You got the Kevin Mitchell tonight. Uh, yeah, Bobby Valentine. What else? What else you want to tease? What else you got for us out there? Well, this week I'm going to interview a guy called Mark Gold and Mark Gold is the original. Yeah, great. He's the original uh, fan club started the first Mets fan club in history. He's a really cool guy. And I look forward to talking with him. I'm going to share some of the documents that the Mets shared with him. And he has um, from that historical time, it didn't, I don't think it lasted more than a few months, but after that, he went on to start a mustard company, which became sponsors of the Mets and they did bobbleheads. And so it, it really kind of is a nicer, longer story, but he started out as a fan and uh, his story is really cool. So that's coming up this week. We're going to do a lot more with Mets culture in this off season and talk about those people who have influenced the, uh, franchise from being outside the organization. You look at a guy like Carl Earhart, who was the sign man. You look at the pin man. You look at cowbell man. You look at some of those people that were surrounding uh, Jane Jarvis, who played the piano at Chase Stadium or the organ. And, you know, some of those people and uh, how they impacted and influenced the Mets. So I'm excited about that. But it's funny. You talk, Mike, about uh, about voting and who you voted for. I love hearing who people voted for but i have a knack and an ability now after doing it a few times that if someone's voting for grody and payson and william a shea they come from a different generation of fan base not that they don't appreciate the current players but those are where their fans roots come from and it's in your your guys were from the roots of your fandom. And it's, it's so cool to hear those stories and they come from different, different generations of Mets fans and where they started because those more current Mets fans who are like from the Cespedes era and beyond don't understand what happened with Doug Flynn, not just the Seaver trade, but Doug Flynn sure, and guys like sure. that from that era. 
And it's just great to be able to expand and share that history with other fans and have them understand, ah, you think it's bad now? Remember this. <laughs> you don't so you don't know it's the good old days until they're gone, John. Watch the Mets <laughs> in the 90s. You didn't know they were good, the good old days. John, you have been very generous for your time. Thank you. This is a ton of fun. Long overdue. We'll do it again. Uh, hopefully the fans agree. Give them something to, you know, chew on as we wait for baseball. Hopefully there'll be baseball soon. and. Stay warm down in uh, North Carolina, I believe, where you are, right? South. And South. South Carolina. I'm sorry, South. I don't want to offend right. you. You're South That's Carolina. Right. No, no. It's um, and uh, listen, keep up the good work. You are a value to the uh, community. Uh, don't let anybody tell you otherwise. And uh, you have a friend here at the Talk Immense podcast. All right, my friend. Thank you. Yes, Mike, you're, you're a friend and a confidant. And you've also been a great supporter of Metro Rewind and all the work I've done in the past. So I appreciate you and I appreciate you all, all you've done. And, Keep up the great job with the podcast. I subscribe to it, and I, I hope everyone else will as well, and give it a five-star review. How about that? You got it. Can't get a better review than that. John, be well. <laughs> Have a great Sunday, my friend. Thanks, Mike. Take care. That is John Struble joining us here on the Talking Mets podcast, co-hosting. Hope you enjoyed it. I know some people are looking to you know, hear a little bit about free agency and hear about what the Mets might do with a bench coach, and there's plenty of time for that. Uh, I thought we'd get into as we get like, what's day 37 of the lockout, uh, a little bit of Mets history and bring the best of independent media here, the best in Mets history and Mets rewind. And what I believe is the best in debate and discussion and good conversation in talking Mets. All right, that's it. Hope everybody enjoyed today's uh, conversation. Of course, you could check me out all the time at the talking Mets podcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva media and you get the show on Apple podcast, Spotify, Amazon Music, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Check out our fans over at the Fan Sided Podcasting Network. Check out the good folks over at RisingApple.com. And until next time, take care, everybody.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.